Well, we're gonna get started here, so we wanna invite everybody out in the foyer to come on in. It's nice to see everyone out and mingling. All right, we're live, so we're going to get started tonight. Sounds like people are having fun out in the foyer, I suppose. <laughs> all, all of those refreshments that Junior gets ready just get everybody excited for Wednesday night. <laughs> Sugar. Sugar, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, so hey, we have a great time on Wednesdays. If you're watching online, you should come and come a little early. You can get in on the fun, so. That's right. <laughs> We're here at 6.30. Time to, yeah, time to go. <laughs> hey, I love that. A, a teenager who has to run to church because he can't get here fast enough. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> Well, we've got a great lesson planned for tonight. Um, just keeping on in our Answers in Genesis curriculum. This is Unit 5, Lesson 44. And tonight, Jacob is finally coming home. And so we're going to have a big homecoming celebration for Jacob tonight at church. Um, and, and you'll just see some things with this encounter tonight that I think really ring true some points about God's plan for relationships. And I believe this lesson will bless all of us as we study it tonight, just seeing what God's intention for relationships are. We are going to see Jacob interacting in, in the relationship with his father-in-law. We're going to see him interacting with his brother, um, his estranged family. And so I just think there are a lot of lessons in this that are definitely practical and applicable for us today. And so I just believe this is going to be a blessing as we study it out tonight. I think everyone's made their way in. And so we're going to go ahead and, and let's pray to begin our service tonight. And we'll read our lesson, focus, and get started. So let's just pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight. We just come ready to receive what you have in store for us as we read through Genesis 32 and 33 and study Jacob and his return home, this next stage in his life, this next time um, and point in history which you had recorded and preserved for us to read and study today. Lord, I just pray that as we look at Jacob's life and we look at your word and we, we put um, the context of what we read in the Old Testament and the New Testament together, I thank you that what we, what we end up with is a, a stronger understanding, a reassured and reaffirmed understanding of what we know about your plans for uh, relationships with people. I thank you, Lord, that we see too how to come back into relationship tonight and that that encourages us for our own lives and the relationships that we have, that as uh, we study this out tonight, as we look at your word, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just uh, speak to these people's hearts, speak to my heart, Lord, in, in ways that my words cannot. And I just pray that as we study this out, uh, we would have the revelation of truth um, for our life and you would direct us as we study the word, how to apply these things in our own life and that it would just build us up and equip us to go out and, and live in the abundance of life that Christ came to give us, Lord. We believe that. And so we, we set off with that expectation tonight of revelation, truth, and, and just a better understanding of the Word so that we can live in the life that you've bought for us. We believe it and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. 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 Well, our lesson focus tonight, Jacob returning to Canaan. Is this, God blessed Jacob so that when he left Laban, he had a large family and many possessions. To return to Canaan, Jacob knew he must reconcile with Esau. Jacob was afraid of his brother, but God protected him and Esau forgave him. God gave Jacob a new name, Israel, to symbolize his new beginning in the land of Canaan. And so tonight we're going to talk for a few minutes about the, the next stage of what happens. We left Jacob having um, this, this agreement with Laban to work and then marry his daughters Leah and Rachel. And then he had 11 kids. We ha he had not yet had Benjamin uh, by Rachel. That would come later on. Um, but he has 11 kids. He's working for Laban. He's still up in the land of Haran where he had gone, fleeing from his brother Esau and going to find a bride who would be acceptable um, in, in the blessing that he had um, upon him and the birthright that was upon him, which we studied about two weeks ago. 
And so now um, we're going to look for a few minutes about Jacob finishing out his time with Laban. And then once we wrap that up, and we're just going to look at a couple verses um, through Genesis 30 and 31 for that. Then we're going to go on and we're going to read through Genesis 32 which talks about him getting ready to go back into uh, the land around Edom where Esau would have been from and he's preparing himself for this this encounter with his estranged brother who he hadn't seen in about 20 years. We're going to talk about what was going on in him and his preparation and then we'll talk about the encounter itself and then we've got some New Testament things about reconciliation we want to look at and if we get to it tonight we'll study a couple of uh, Hebraic words, uh, teraphim and Israel and talk about what those mean too. And so let's get started tonight with the next step in Jacob's life. Um, He had worked for 14 years. This is what we studied about last week, just bringing us back up to speed. He had worked 14 years for Laban to pay for both of his two wives, Leah and Rachel. And we know how that went. He originally wanted Rachel because she had strong eyes and, you know, he moved the boulder off the well for her. And so he was in love with Rachel, but Laban didn't want to have his younger daughter married before his older daughter. And so he deceived Jacob. So we saw the deceiver getting deceived and um, he ended up working double the time for double the wives and um, then at this point at this juncture and we would find this in Genesis 30 he asks Laban um, to leave because he wants to go back to his own place and his own country you say this he, he got tired of working for his father-in-law and he was ready to go do his own thing now he had he had fulfilled his agreement to work the 14 years for Laban and he was ready to step out and then in Genesis 30 27 through 28 which is on your scripture sheet Laban says back to him, please stay if I have found favor in your eyes, for I have learned by experience. I've seen it in my own life, Laban says, that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. Then he said, name me your wages and I will give it. You see, what Laban experienced during the 14 years of Jacob working for him was such an increase and such a blessing that he noticed that there was a difference. He said, Jacob, when you started working for me, everything got a whole lot better than it was before. That's what God's favor, that's what God's blessing, that's what God's anointing will do in your life. You know, when when God promised Jacob that he would bless him and he would be a blessing to others, well, we've talked about this on Sundays before, about how you you have to be blessed in order to go out and bless. You can't give what you don't have, isn't that right? And so if if I don't have it working in my life, then I can't go and be a blessing to others. And so part of fulfilling the promise, part of fulfilling the word of God that he had given to Jacob and his father Isaac and his father Abraham was he's got to be blessed so that the nations uh, will in turn be blessed. And God's talked to Jacob about how he would provide for him. We knew that because he, in his first night of fleeing, he put his head on the rock and he slept because he didn't have anything with him. And so he, he takes off and he, his work is just blessed by God in such a way that Laban, I mean, this to me sounds a little bit like begging. You know, Jacob has fulfilled his covenant. He can leave. And Laban's saying, please don't leave. I'll give you whatever you want. I mean, that's what it says right here in Genesis 30. Name your wages and I will give it. And so here Laban is again, just trying to make this situation work out for his good, trying to talk Jacob into staying. And so I'm going to summarize what that agreement looked like for you. If you want to read it more in depth, you can uh, read through Genesis 30. Uh, essentially, Jacob, he agrees to stay and work for Laban, and the arrangement, his wage was going to be uh, the speckled and the streaked uh, sheep and the goats. So of the flocks, because that would have been Jacob's job for Laban, he was a shepherd, he was tending the flocks, he was keeping the livestock. And so the agreement was that when the speckled, when the streaked, and it talks too about the brown, um, the, the lambs, the sheep, and the goats, when they would have these imperfect, um, by, by visual standards, um, lambs and, and um, kids, which is the goat version of a small one, Um, Jacob would receive those as his payment. And so as they worked, he would take the ones that were speckled and spotted, and Laban would get the ones that were without blemish, as as it was said. Now, something that's notable about that is Jacob agrees to take the lesser of the product. You know, he's he's doing the work, and we don't really get an indication of what Laban's doing. We know he's not out with the flocks, but Jacob is doing the work, and he agrees that my wages will just be the lesser of these animals. Well, what happens during that time, um, Jacob agrees to take these, and as the, the livestock reproduces, guess which ones were reproduced in abundance? It was the streaked, it was the spotted, it was the brown ones. It was the ones that Jacob was going to get. Those were the ones that multiplied abundantly, 
And so Jacob was blessed and he was increased. And you know, it, it, it was a matter of both of them were increasing, but Jacob, because of the blessing of God, was increasing in such a rapid pace, Laban ended up getting jealous. And so Jacob does this with Laban for six years. He works for the flock. So he worked seven years for Leah, he worked seven years for Rachel, and then he worked six years um, for a flock. And it's through this time of working that God really, he provides for him. You know, we talked a week ago, or, or maybe it was, a, yeah, it was a week ago, about how he went into the land with nothing, right? He went in without any possessions, he had to make a quick escape, and yet here he is 20 years later, he's got two wives, 11 kids, and he's got the big, a, a huge flock. Because Laban was well off, and here Jacob is exceeding like the richest man around. And so he's doing very well because of the blessing of God. And so it was because of God's favor and the blessing on Jacob's life that Laban and his, his sons became jealous. What it is, is God was keeping his word to Jacob. And we see this all through Genesis. God keeps his word. Don't you know that tonight? God keeps his word. He's not a liar. And so Laban gets jealous and... Um, you know, it's identified in Genesis 31, 41. We get the timeline. Jacob is talking to Leah and Rachel, and um, he, he knows that God is calling him out. He's, he knows that this is the time to go. And he says, thus I have been in your house. He's talking about Laban's house. And he's, he's saying this to the two daughters, to his wives. I've been in Laban's house, your house, for 20 years. I've served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you've changed my wages 10 times. And so something else we see about this is Laban, as he's paying Jacob, keeps changing the agreement, just like he did with his daughters. And so the deceiver continues to be deceptive. The one who you know changes the, the circumstances, he keeps doing that. What I get from this is Laban was a difficult master to work for. It could not have been easy to work in that condition where you know I'm doing everything you ask, everything is going well, and you're still not happy. You're still upset. And he was angry. Uh, another verse in Genesis 31 talks about how Laban's sons were becoming um, jealous of Jacob and his sons. And it was because they saw Jacob increasing due to the blessing on his life. And Laban was not as um, wealthy as Jacob was becoming. Something I wrote down about this as, as I was studying out is this is the problem with earthly comparison. You know, when you are comparing what I've got versus what another person has and not what God has blessed them with and what God's blessing me with, what you're going to end up with is jealousy, is strife, is division. And what it's going to cause, well, it's division. That's what the result of it is. You know, my, my pride can't handle the fact that Jacob's got more. He came to work for me, and here he is being increased beyond me. And so Laban can't handle that, and I'm sure his attempt at changing wages, it was trying to manipulate the blessing of God to work for him. You know, you can't do that. You know, you can't manipulate God's blessing. If it's promised to you, then you need to receive it from God and not try to shift it through a person. We've talked about that in other lessons too. And so it was God's blessing. You know, it wasn't just the fact that Jacob was such an outstanding shepherd. I mean, if we go back to his younger years, what we found out about him is he liked hanging out at the tent, right? He liked cooking and he liked hanging out with mom. He wasn't out in the wild dealing with the animals. And so it wasn't that Jacob just had these amazing skills and was this awesome shepherd. It was, it was the blessing and that's it. It was the blessing and favor of God causing him to increase. And so at this point, God instructs Jacob to return to the land of his family. He affirms that he's with Jacob. And so Jacob, he takes off. He tells Leah and Rachel and the kids, we're, we're leaving, we're going home. I see your father's angry with me. I think the way he says it is his face is not upon me like it used to be. He's saying he is not looking favorably upon me anymore. I have fallen out of his favor. And so we need to get out of here. And so the daughters, they agree. They say, well, hey, we don't have any inheritance here anyway. Laban's given it all to our brothers. And so we've got no stake in staying in this land. We, we should go. Let's, let's go where God is telling you to go. And so they leave. And something that happens in their departure is Rachel steals all of the, the idols out of Laban's house. And so then Laban, he pursues Jacob um, after this prompt departure. Now, there were no goodbyes, all right? Jacob was in another spot watching um, the, the flocks, and he took off with his stuff. He didn't, he didn't steal Laban's flock, but he took off without saying anything. He didn't say goodbye. He didn't give him time to line up a replacement. I mean, he just left, and he took the daughters and the grandkids with him. 
And so he starts heading back to the land of Canaan. Laban pursues him. He finally catches up with him. And what follows is a really contentious encounter. Laban is, is furious that his idols have been stolen, and he accuses Jacob of taking them. Jacob doesn't have any idea what's going on because he didn't take them. Rachel did. And um, he ends up saying, well, whoever took them, let's put them to death because I didn't do it, and I don't want that for anybody in my camp. You know, we don't want the idols here. You should have them. So, you know, go and search the camp. If you find them, then we'll kill whoever took them. Well, Rachel hides them under her. She sits on top of them and makes it so that Laban doesn't find them. And I don't think she ever comes forward and says anything about them, at least not that I can find in Scripture. And so then Jacob gets mad at Laban. He says, you falsely accused me. We've got, you know, we need to settle this thing. And what ends up happening is... um. The night before all that, and I know we're just, we're just going through this quick, but we, we have to so we can get to the next part. Um, the night before that, God had spoken to Laban, and he had told him, you need to be careful when you meet with Jacob, because blessed is the one who blesses him, and cursed is the one who curses him. God says, I'm, I'm watching out for Jacob, Laban. So I know you're going to have this encounter tomorrow. You're just going to want to watch what you do and watch what you say, because he is my blessed one. You know that when God is on your side, your enemies, if God is for us, who can be against us, right? I mean, your enemies should not be dealing harshly with you because I believe that we're protected by our Lord and Savior. I believe that we have a blessing upon us. We have God's hand of protection upon us. And I'm not, I'm not saying that if somebody comes up and says something nasty to you, God's going to strike them down. I don't believe that that's going to happen. But I, I do believe that when people deal with us, they're dealing with the body of Christ. You know, and, and that carries weight with it. Now, we know that Jesus is merciful and he's full of grace, and that's how we ought to be toward people too. But we see with Laban here that, that God warns him. He says, be careful. And so Laban is careful, it seems, about speaking to Jacob. Um, the result of this encounter is they end up making a covenant together. And what they do is, is they put a pillar on the ground and they say, all right, this is our dividing line. Jacob, you don't come any further closer to where I'm at. You stay beyond this in your land, and I won't come any closer either. We'll, we'll make this our boundary. We'll keep ourselves apart. And then the other part that Laban says is you just need to treat my daughters right. And that's pretty much how it's left. They depart. They go their separate ways. And now we're ready to get to the main part of the lesson tonight. How did you like that introduction? Fast. I know. There's a lot to it, and... and you know, we, we could spend even more time than we do in Genesis, but we're just going to keep moving. Um, this is a question we're going to look at tonight as we continue into these next two chapters. How is the gospel part of reconciling relationships? And I know I'm giving the answer ahead of time, but I will tell you the gospel is the only way to effectively reconcile relationships. It is only by the life in Christ and the forgiveness that's available in Christ that you can fully and truly reconcile relationships. And I know there's, there's other people that would give you a little, um, you know, tracks to follow or tips or tactics to, you know, win friends and influence people. I think that's a book that's been around for a while. But I'll tell you, the gospel is the way to really mend a relationship. Look into Christ as the one who has brought us back into right relationship with God and using that as a model and a platform for how we bring relationship back with other people. This is the only way to truly restore and, and what we'll talk about, reconcile relationships. So we're going to pick up in Genesis 32. Laban and Jacob have just departed ways. They're good enough. Jacob is done working for him. He's moving on with his flocks and his possessions. He's been increased greatly. And now he's heading into the land of Canaan. He's making his return home. Genesis 32 says, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called that place Mahanaim. Verse 3, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. 20 years, just, just so we reinforce that. He's been gone 20 years, and he's telling his brother, or he's sending a servant to go tell his brother, I've been gone serving Laban, and now I'm coming back. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. So he's saying, I've... I've Worked with Laban. I've increased. I've got all these possessions. I'm coming back, and I want to know that we're on good terms uh, before I get there. And so the messengers, they go and tell Esau all of this stuff. They say, he's been with Laban for the last 20 years. He's coming now. He's got all this stuff. 
He wants to find favor. He wants to be on good terms with you. And the messengers come back saying, we met your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. That sounds like a bad thing to Jacob. He was greatly afraid and distressed, so you know he didn't take that news very well. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps. This was his thinking. If Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that's left will escape. You know, he's making his escape plan. He's figuring out, okay, how can I make sure some of my stuff survives my brother's attack? So he is fully expecting the worst possible scenario. He is believing Esau is coming to scorch earth and just take him out. He's still mad. You know, that was how he was left. If you remember the last message he got from Esau was, I'm going to murder you for stealing my birthright. I'm going to murder you for taking that blessing from the fa- from our father Isaac. And so he's still got this picture of angry Esau in his mind. You know, 20 years can change somebody, but he's expecting Esau to still be holding this grudge. Jacob says, oh God of my father, of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. So he is in the worst fear of his life. He's greatly distressed. And what does he do? He prays. See, this is the right response from Jacob. He he prays. He says, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, your family, that I may do you good. Look at how he starts his prayer. He says, God, you told me to come back to my country. He's reminding God of his word. And he's, he said, too, that, God, you said you were going to do good to me in my life. And so I'm just reminding you of what your promise to me was. That's not a bad way to pray. Did you know that? To pray, God, this is what you said. And so I'm just taking you at your word and trusting you to do what you said you were going to do. That's, that's an effective way to pray. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. That's not a bad thing to pray either. God, you've been faithful to me. You have loved me. You have provided for me. You have been good to me. He's acknowledging the goodness of God. And so number one, he's, he's saying, and I believe he's confessing it probably to just reaffirm himself and stir his own faith up. But he's praying, God, this is what you said. This is what I know about you. I know that you're faithful. I know that you're capable. I know that you're good and loving. You're steadfast. You're not changing. You're not moving. I know you're going to do what you said you're going to do. So he says, God, this is what you said. I know you're going to do it. For with only my staff, I've crossed this Jordan. He says, "You've, you've done it for me already. You know, I came with nothing. And yet here I am, two wives, 11 kids, flocks, oxen, donkey, all the stuff. You've done it already, God. And now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. And so he says, God, this is your word. This is who you are. This is what you've done for me. And this is what I believe I need to have happen so I can keep living in the promise right now. So please deliver me from my brother. Don't let him kill me. Don't let him destroy our camps. He said, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. He's going back to the word. He's going back to the promise of God. You know, if you're in doubt about what to pray, pray the word, pray God's word. Tell God, hey, this is what you said to me. I believe it's true. I know you're of good character. I know you'll do what you said you'll do. I know you've done it in my life already. This is how I've seen you moving. So God, I trust you and I believe that you will be faithful. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. Now, I'll just tell you this. I don't know if Jacob like got this in prayer. You know, sometimes when you're praying, you'll get direction to to take an action. And I don't know if this was something that God directed him to do. We don't get it. It doesn't say it explicitly that he did or did not. I believe it's possible that he could have been moved while he was praying. You know what? I I ought to send Esau some some gifts to, to, you know, butter him up before I get to see him. I should do something to find favor in his sight. I don't know if that's the case, or I don't know if he got out of prayer and and he just went right back to being afraid and he started thinking, what can I do? What can I do? I don't know the answer to that. It could could have been either. Either way, what he does is he takes, these are staggering numbers, 200 female goats. That's a lot of goats and 20 male goats. 200 ewes and 20 rams. Those are, those are sheep. 30 milking camels and their calves. Milking camels. Yum. 40 cows and 10 bulls. 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. That's a lot of livestock. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put space between drove and drove. And so he spreads all these gifts out and he says, you're going to go one at a time. 
He instructed the first one, Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And to whose are these ahead of you? You shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present to send to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he's behind us. He likewise instructed the second and third, and to all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. He shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. And so Jacob is, is hoping that by sending these droves, you know, one after another, 200 of the first one, and then the next, and the next, and the next, he says, Servant, tell him, your servant Jacob. You know, he's humbling himself right now. This is the guy who's got the blessing and the birthright of that family line. And he's saying, your servant, Jacob. In fact, the the word of God about his life, what was spoken um, at the time of his birth, was that the older would serve the younger. And so what he's doing right now is is humbling himself with hopes that he'll appease Esau. He's saying, I'm I'm coming humbly. Esau, I want you to know that I am, I am here to find favor in your side. I'm here to just be on good terms. And so I hope you'll accept me as I humbly come. And then he gives him these gifts. So the present passed on ahead of him. He himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. See, here's Jacob after a blessing again. It's just, it's what he does. He wants the blessing. And he said to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So there we have it, his preparation to return to Canaan. There's a lot going on there. You know, we talked through how he expected the worst, um, how he believed that Esau and the 400 men were coming to attack him and Jacob's doing everything he can think to do to try to appease him, to try to um, you know, make it so that he finds favor and has peace rather than war and destruction um, happening in his life. I want us to look just briefly at Luke eleven seventeen. You know what we talked about a few weeks back was how there's consequence to sin. Do you remember that night we talked about sin and we started by thanking the Lord that we're forgiven of our sin. We're going to see that again tonight too. But sin, as, as we looked at, if unaddressed, if unpaid for it, it, well, it carries a price. It carries a payment, which we're thankful Jesus paid for us. But here Jacob, he was expecting to take on the repercussion, take on the payment of sin. In Luke eleven seventeen, we see this. It says, But he, knowing their thoughts, and this is when um, the religious leaders were trying to quiz Jesus, or they weren't really quizzing him, but he had uh, cast out a demon, and they were saying, Well, he cast this demon out in Beelzebub's name. You know, he's doing this by the power of the devil. And he says, How do you think I'm casting out demons in the devil's like power? That doesn't make any sense. And this is what he says. Um, even every kingdom divided against itself is brought to destruction, and a house divided um, against a house falls. I just wanted to bring this scripture up because I think we see emphasized here the point that division leads to destruction. And this is what we see Jesus teach, a house divided falls. 
Division leads to destruction, desolation. Um, another, another translation says it lay, is laid waste to. And that's kind of what I wrote down about Jacob. I think he was expecting to be laid to waste because of the division that was going on in his, in his family. He believed that this separation between him and Esau was ultimately going to uh, cultivate to a point of destruction and to just desolation. You know, it reminded me of um, something back in high school. I, I played football for a couple years, and I remember um, about how our coaches hated it when one person would play what they called me football. Has anybody ever heard a term like that before? You know, the person that thinks they have to run every play and they have to catch every pass, they have to do it all, right? I have to get all of it myself. My coaches didn't like that. And I just remember them talking about how when you, when you play selfishly, what you're doing is dividing the rest of the team off. You're not allowing the rest of the team to help. You're not allowing the rest of us to do what we can do to support. And I think we see the same thing in this. When we, when we separate and we say, you know, I'm going to do it on my own, we split off from the others, what we do is cause destruction. What we do is, is cause damage because division is, is it's the splitting off of the many talents together. We see that talked about throughout, and I didn't want to go through all the scriptures in Corinthians that talk about division, but we know that unity is the plan of God. We know that division is something that ultimately leads to destruction. In the body of Christ, I mean, God talks about how if one part is separated from the rest of the body, what good is it? And, you know, the rest of the body misses, when they're missing a part, they're not able to do the work as efficiently and as well and as fully as they should. We need every part, don't we? You know, division is, is a destructive thing because it limits what can happen. You know, one of the things, I'm going to jump ahead now, but what we're going to see later on is when Esau and Jacob finally meet up, they, like, they just want to give to each other. Esau wants to give his understanding of the land and his help and his people he wants to go and help Jacob go and settle into the land and Jacob wants to give him of all his possessions and all of the increase and in blessing that he got and I just had this thought man how great would it have been if these two brothers had spent the last 20 years working together instead of working divided you know when I split myself off I'm all I've got you know when we've got a body around us, when we've got a family around us, we're better off. I mean, it says that in Ecclesiastes. A three-quarter strand is not easily broken. There's an element of support that comes when we're unified with others. And division, which is the enemy's plan, you know, the devil likes destruction. He likes desolation. He likes laying waste. And so I'm sure the enemy celebrates every time a division is made, every time a cutting off is made from one person to another. And so, just like Jacob here had been divided from his family and he was expecting the worst as a result of that, we too, we need to be cautious of division because ultimately it's going to lead to destruction. Ultimately it's going to lead to destruction. And so we see the result of that here, just that his expectation was so bad because, well, he was expecting the fruit of division. So in this, he recognizes his need for God's help. He decides to pray. Um, he stands on the word like we were talking about earlier. Um, he also makes this preparation to send Esau gifts, hoping to cool his anger. And then in the night, and this is where we'll talk for a few minutes here, in the night, um, it, it says that um, Jacob ended up wrestling with a man. And uh, we'll look at a couple, we'll look at Hosea um, 12, 3 through 4. That's going to be another verse we look at. But um, we believe that the person he was wrestling with was God. And, and we're going to see that here in a minute. Let me mention a couple things about the encounter of Jacob wrestling um, with God before he goes to meet Esau. This encounter, um, it takes place right after Jacob has acknowledged his inability to fix the situation and right after. He has called out to God. You know, I believe that when we call out to God, he shows up. And I think this is what we see with Jacob. He calls out and he says, Lord, I can't do it. You know, I'm, I'm stuck. I can send my gift, I guess. But um, Esau and his 400 guys, you know, Esau is a hunter and I'm the tent guy. And so I'm not going to be able to fight him off. I need your help, Lord. I can't do this on my own. And then that very same night, we see the Lord show up. And, and he has this encounter with Jacob. Two things I want to identify that happen while he's wrestling. The first is he receives a new name. He receives a new name. I'll go back to where that happened here. All right, so in verse 27, this man 
who we believe is the Lord, he says to Jacob, what is your name? And he tells him, I'm Jacob. Well, we know what Jacob means. It means deceiver, right? And so in this moment, what the Lord is doing is having Jacob um, be real and be acknowledging about who he has been and what he's done. You know, he's really acknowledging the fact that he's been a deceiver. Jacob's saying, I'm Jacob. And in saying that, he's identifying, I'm, I'm a deceiver. I'm, I'm deceptive. And he says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you've striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. And so what happens in this moment, and really it's, it's a picture of um, coming to the Lord in repentance and receiving Him as Savior and becoming new. I mean, this is like, it's foreshadowing. It's a picture of becoming born again, is really what this is. Because he has an encounter with God, and he says to God, I'm Jacob. I'm a deceiver. I'm a sinner. Have you ever prayed that before? Lord, I, I know that I've sinned and fallen short of your glory. And so I'm asking you now to make me new. You're my Lord. You're my Savior. I need you. I need your blessing, not my own work. I'm going to stop trying to sin my way into life. I'm going to stop trying to sin my way into heaven. I want to be made something else. So he says, I'm, I'm Jacob. And he says, no, you're not anymore. I'm going to call you Israel for you've striven with God and with men and you've prevailed. And so he gets a new identity. And I believe this is a picture of, of being born again for us because we get a new identity in Christ. When we experience and we encounter God and we say, Lord, I've been a sinner, but I know that you have the power to change me and make me something else, we receive a new identity. We become a new man. And so we see this happen with Jacob. And then the second thing um, that we can take away from this encounter is, is he's marked. You know, uh, we talked, uh, we read in the scripture, verse 25, when the man saw he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And so we see this, this touching of the hip, and we know that, you know, uh, it talked about how later on the Hebrew people, they wouldn't eat the meat. Um, in verse 32, to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. And so even the tradition of not eating that part of an animal is an identifier of the mark that had been left on Jacob from his um, encounter with God. I wrote this down. When you encounter God, you leave different. You leave different. And, you know, we could look at this and we could say, well, gee, that wasn't very nice of God to leave Jacob with, without his hip socket. But you know what? He was no longer able to strive to make things happen on his own. He was relying on God. And it's a physical picture of what happens to us spiritually when we become born again. Because I don't know about you, but I can't live a new life without the new life in Christ. If he, if he is not alive, then I can't be alive because my old man's dead and my new life is totally dependent on God. Well, Jacob is, is totally dependent on God now. You know, he's, he's a guy with a limp. He's not, he's not going to be able to run away from Esau again. Isn't that interesting? Before his big encounter with Esau, the ability, he's not running anywhere. He doesn't have the ability to strive, to run, to work on his own anymore. He is totally dependent on God. And I believe when you and I receive new life in Christ, we're totally dependent on God, aren't we? Amen. And so, it's, again, it's just a picture of something that happens in an encounter with God. You leave, you leave different. You leave marked. You know, even this element of striving with God or, or wrestling with God, you know, I was just I was thinking about that and praying about it too. And I was reminded of the scripture in um, 2 Timothy that talks about studying to show yourself approved, uh, work or not ashamed, um, rightly dividing the word of truth. You know, when we re are wrestling with God, I'll tell you, it's reading this word right here. Yeah. It's reading the word of truth. You know, Jacob may have encountered the Lord as, as a man in a tent one night. We encounter the Lord right here in our word, don't we? And, you know, studying to show yourself approved, that, that's not always just an easy breezy thing. I mean, there, there are times where it feels like wrestling a little bit. You get into the word and you, well, Lord, I don't know if I understand that right now. And so I'd like you to show me what that means. And then he takes you to another spot and, and there's, there's a studying element to it. It doesn't all, it's not always just like smooth and easy and dropping in. That comes, I believe, as we study to show ourselves to prove. Don't you believe that? We're going to get the revelation, but I believe there are times where we, we just got to get in. And it's, it's not a bad thing either. I'll say that too. This, this is not, 
studying the word, you know, quote unquote wrestling with God in the word of God, it's not a it's not a hard thing, it's not a difficult thing. It's not something that we should look down upon doing or, or we should um, you know put off or not want to do. This is this is where we encounter him. This is where we're gonna have that that marking happen. You know, I tell you, for me still, when I get into the word and I see something new, I leave different. I leave changed. I, I leave more reliant on God than I went in with. Happens to me every time. I read the Bible. I, I see something new, and it changes something about me. It, it, I'll tell you what it does. It brings part of me alive. A, a part of me that life was available for, but I hadn't seen it yet. And once I get it, it, it changes an element, and I leave different than I came. And so I believe that even in this... Um, as, as Jacob leaves marked and with a new name, I believe it's a picture for us about being born again and leaving different than we came. One other scripture about this encounter of wrestling with the man in Hosea 12, verse 3 through 4, talking about Jacob. It says, He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel, which we talked about before that... Um, the angel at times, that's referring to um, Jesus in the Old Testament, and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him and found him in Bethel. And there he spoke to us. So that's just another scripture that's identifying what happened. Um, it's a confirmation of, of what we've said and read so far. And um, once again, what we see Jacob doing in this encounter with God is he's seeking God's favor. He's seeking God's blessing. He's seeking uh, for the promise of God to, to happen in his life. And I believe that's something we ought to have too. We, we ought to be, I, I expect God's favor in my life. Amen. You know that? I expect his favor. When I encounter him, I expect, I expect favor and blessing because that's what he's promised to me. And so Jacob is in the same, same boat. We just see Hosea as a confirmation of that. Um, let's go on now to the next chapter of this story. He's got the confirmation. He's got the word. He has done everything um, in the natural that he can do to get ready for this encounter with Esau. And here it is about to happen. Genesis 33, verse 1, it says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front. And then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, and embraced him, and fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and the herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and see her. So Esau said, Let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Sakoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Sakoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. 
which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from, from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he brought for a hundred he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. So there we have it. He's back in the land. Jacob has returned to Canaan. So what we see in this encounter after his night of, of well wrestling with the Lord, after leaving marked, after um, just having, having done everything he could do, um, we see him approach Esau with humility. We talked about how he sent those gifts, and he bowed seven times as he approached. It kind of gives you a picture of how this was going. He sees Esau coming in the distance with all of his men, and as he gets closer and closer, he's bowing down as an act of humility, just desiring to find favor in the sight of his brother. And so we see Jacob meeting Esau with humility, but we see Esau meeting Jacob with love. And I would even say with forgiveness for the way he stole him, uh, stole his blessing from Isaac. You know, his desire we see with as Esau talks to Jacob is his desires to have relationship with his brother restored. And it seems like that's Jacob's um, desire too, whether that's to you know, know him and, and really have a relationship or just to get along enough where they're not trying to kill each other in the land. We see that they want peace between the two of them. And so both approach um, this, this circumstance in a way that will lead to that. Both, I believe, are desiring reconciliation as they meet again. Um, I wrote it down like this. Jacob gives generously to Esau, and Esau offers his support to Jacob. And I think it's really interesting that as they meet again 20 years later, the one who originally worked sinfully to acquire the blessing is now willing to give it up. You know that it's said in the word that Jacob gave to Esau out of his blessing. Well, that was the blessing that he stole from Esau in the beginning. Isn't that interesting that over time, as, as Jacob's heart changes about this matter, he's no longer so concerned with acquiring the blessing. He's experienced God's faithfulness, and he no longer feels like, I have to work this thing out on my own. Now he's ready to give. It reminds me of what it says in Acts 20, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Jacob's finally coming to realize that it's better to give out of the blessing than it is to try to pile up the blessing for myself. And so as he meets Esau, it's, it's like a total 180 where he had once worked all the way to the point of sinning to try to get the blessing. Now he's willing to give it. And Esau, we see him wanting to help his brother get back home. You know, he says, let me show you the way. Let me, let me help you get back. And then when Jacob says no to that, he says, well, let me leave some of these 400 guys with you. They, you know, they would have been a help. And Jacob says no to that. He says, it's not necessary. We'll continue at our pace. We'll make it there. And I said this earlier, but imagine how much better it would have been if these two brothers would have been unified from the start rather than being divided by sin. I mean, we, we know that they're like polar opposites, right? We know Jacob's the tent guy and Esau's the woods guy. And we kind of see that here too. You know, Jacob, he's, he's made his tent at home and he's increased with the flocks. And here's Esau with his 400 guys. I mean, they're probably the rough, rugged bunch that are out, you know, tearing up the wild. That would have made a great duo. I mean, they would have been effective in the land of Canaan together if they had stayed together, if they had been in unity. Hey, maybe Esau could have gone with Jacob up to Haran and taken one of the good wives, and his parents would have liked him more. I mean, there are all kinds of things that could have been much better for both of them if they hadn't spent the 20 years divided. And so I say all that to get to the point of reconciliation. This is a moment of reconciliation. This is a moment of restored relationships. And I believe it's one of the most glorious things we see in the Bible, is relationship restored. It's true for us and God. I mean, that is the best thing to ever happen to me, is the fact that I've got a restored relationship with God. But I believe His plan for people is to have restored relationships too. And here's a question I wrote down that, that I've been considering, and I'll offer it to you to consider too. What would be better if you were cooperating rather than competing? You know, we were talking about Esau and Jacob. They could have teamed up and made a great duo in the land of Canaan. They could have been a great team if there was unity instead of division. What in your life would be better if instead of competing with someone, you decided to start cooperating with them? 
If instead of letting that, that thing that you've got between you, that thing, I'm, I'm trying to get it so that they can't have it, if that thing wasn't there and you guys could just cooperate together, would it be better? I believe, it, I believe things would be better. I believe when there's unity in a place, it's, it's going to be better off. Like that scripture we read in Luke says, Luke 11, I think verse 17, a house divided will not stand. It's, it's going to cause destruction. I mean, division is never going to lead to life. And I believe God's plan for us is abundance of life. Don't you believe that? Amen. And so I believe that reconciliation, which is the bringing back together of, of divided relationships, is so important because it's part of the plan of life. Reconciliation is a part of life. Restored relationships are a part of life. When, when there is just division, well, like we said, there's going to be destruction. And so reconciliation is the cure to division, which I believe in turn is, is a cure to destruction. It's a cure to death. You know, reconciliation, restoring relationships, that is a cure to destructive things in life. Reconciliation is God's plan. Acts 2, verse 38. Acts 2, verse 38, talking about forgiveness, which is an element of reconciliation. We're going to kind of get a full picture here of what reconciliation looks like in Acts 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, I also say for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a summary of being reconciled to God. This is a summary of having our relationship with God restored. Repentance is the first thing we see. Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That baptism is, is a change. That's being born again. That, that is letting the old thing pass away and letting the new thing come. And so the first thing is identifying that what happened was bad. And so we need to bury that thing and start something new. This is one of the, this, I'll tell you, this is like the first step to reconciliation. Identifying what went wrong, addressing it, and burying it. That's the only way you're going to have it restored. If, if you sweep it under the rug and never talk about it again, it's always going to be there. It doesn't go away on its own. I mean, we even see it with Jacob and Esau. I mean, they come together and Jacob is saying, let me give you some of the blessing back. I know what happened was wrong. And we might not have the word by word of, you know, Esau, I really, sh I, I did you wrong 20 years ago. I shouldn't have done that to you, brother. I mean, we don't get that. But can you see in this moment that Esau, he's already forgiven Jacob because he's not coming to kill him. He's coming to reconcile the relationship. So forgiveness is present. And we know that Jacob realizes it was wrong and he's offering peace to Esau, trying to come in favor. You know, that's why he says he came humbly. He came as your servant. He identified himself over and over and over again as your servant. He's identifying, I did something wrong. And so I want us to make this right together. So the first thing, and, and it's true of this encounter, it's true of us with God repent identify what was wrong call it what it was that was sinful that was wrong that was not a, a good way for me to behave towards you i apologize for it and so i want to i want to put that away i don't want that to be who we are anymore i don't want that to be um, something that stands between us i'm burying the old and i'm coming alive in the new just like we do in christ be baptized in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins forgiveness has to be available and that's kind of the third part of this is, is forgiveness is absolutely essential to reconciliation too if there's not a newness to be offered then we're dead yep. you know I, I can say I did wrong I shouldn't have done that I'm sorry I recognize we need to put that away forgiveness is the new part and if there's no forgiveness which, which is on the part of the person who's been offended or, or done wrong to if that forgiveness isn't available, aren't you glad Christ forgave us so that we can come into newness of life with Him? If Christ didn't forgive us, we're just dead. And I can know I'm dead. I, I can, I'd stay dead. I don't have anywhere else to go. And that'd be a terrible thing, wouldn't it? I mean, what an awful place to be stuck, to know that it's dead and identified and it's right there and I'm trying to put it in the grave and keep it shut, but I'm just stuck here with the dead thing because we can't get past it. There's no newness available. Christ offered us newness of life. That's in forgiveness. If there wasn't forgiveness and the remission of sins, 
Well, we'd just still be stuck dead. And then he says, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. That's part of that newness of, well, it is the newness of life. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the power that raises us up in life. And so praise God that we get the gift of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if I have a parallel to tie into that with a relationship. I'll just tell you, when you, when you repent and you put the old thing away and you come into forgiveness, you're going to experience a new life. And maybe that's our parallel with what the Holy Spirit does in us. That is going to be a new life for you to live. And I believe this too. For born again believers, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to walk out newness of life. And so if, you're, if, we're, if our flesh is having a hard time with it, praise the Lord, we don't have to live all in the flesh. We, li- we get to live in the Spirit. Amen? Amen. We don't, we're not stuck to flesh only. We get to live in the things of the Spirit. One more verse about forgiveness is Ephesians 4, verse 32. It says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Praise the Lord. He forgave us. We're instructed here to forgive one another. We're supposed to offer forgiveness. And, and there's count, probably count them. There's a lot of other scriptures that talk about forgiveness. There are a lot of other scriptures that talk about forgiveness. But I, I wanted to identify this one because it, it shows us a parallel here. It's out of the fact that I've been forgiven in Christ that I can forgive anybody of anything. Because I haven't had to go die on a cross. And Jesus did that for you and me, and yet he still forgave us anyway. My sin put him on a cross, and he forgave me for that. You know, I've done things, I, I've been hurt by people, I, I've, I've been upset by people, I've been angered with people, I've had people do all kinds of things. Anybody else? Can I get an amen on that one? But I'll tell you what, I have never been put on a cross, I've never been lashed by the Roman army. I have never had to take and bear the weight of the world and all the sins that anybody would ever commit. I haven't had to do that. And yet Christ forgave us. So if He can do that, and I'm with Him, then I can forgive the thing you did. I can forgive that. Because He forgave it. Amen? And if He's forgiven it, well then i got to forgive it. Because I'm with Him. And my identity's in Him. And my, if I believe I'm with Christ, then I'm going to forgive what Christ has forgiven. And Christ has forgiven those of us who have claimed Him as our Lord and Savior. So praise the Lord. We've got forgiveness, and it makes us able to forgive. I don't want to spend much time at all on it, but I'll also tell you Ephesians 4 verse 32 is pretty great because it, it tells us just a couple things about what forgiveness looks like. Forgiveness says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Isn't it interesting that kindness and tender-heartedness are linked to forgiveness? And so forgiveness doesn't look like holding a grudge and beating you over the head with what you did every time I get mad at you again, or I'm going to use this as a weapon to get what I want every time I want it. Forgiveness is tender-hearted, it's kind, and we know what those are like, don't we? We know what it's like to be compassionate towards someone, to care for them, to have their best interest at heart. To be kind, to offer something that's helpful and useful and good. This is what forgiveness is like. And we can look at Christ. Look what he's done for us. Aren't you glad Christ doesn't bring up my sin every time I miss it? Oh, Isaac, I would forgive you. But you know, that's the, that's the third time this month. No, he doesn't do that. He's kind. He's tenderhearted. He is loving, isn't he? And so out of the forgiveness we have, we, we are able to forgive. Um, and not just able to. I wrote this down, and I think it's in your notes. I have a desire to forgive. Because I've experienced forgiveness and how, how it brings life, I want to forgive people. I want other people to experience forgiveness. And I think with Christians, that's a great place to start with the world. Hey, let, let's forgive people so that they know what that feels like. And not just say I forgive them, but really forgive them. And be kind and tender-hearted towards them after I forgive them. That way they know, hey, these people that talk about Jesus, they're kind of different. When I do something wrong towards them, they're like nice to me. They're, they're kind towards me. What's that about? Don't they know that I don't like them? Well, that's okay. I forgive you for that. I understand. You're just, you're just blind and lost. Maybe don't say that, though. Forgiveness isn't meant to be earned. It ought to be the goal for everyone who desires life. We should desire forgiveness. We should desire this reconciliation. I do. I want reconciliation in my relationship with God. I want reconciliation in relationships with people because 
that's what leads to life whereas division as we said earlier i know i I said it before i've said it enough times it leads to destruction division leads to destruction reconciliation lives uh, leads to life and so i don't think i have time to get into it tonight but um something that goes along with this reconciliation this um, restoration this renewed relationship is a transition from strife and fear to peace and forgiveness. You can read Romans 12, 14 through 21. It talks a little bit about that, about how we ought to be living in right relationships um, with people. I believe it's God's plan for us to get transitioned from a place of strife and fear to a place of peace and forgiveness, which is a place of reconciliation where we've been made right on terms with other people. Um, You know, this transition to get away from strife and fear and get to peace and forgiveness, that requires reconciliation. And and I'm kind of throwing another thing out at you here, but reconciliation is a work of love. Reconciliation is a work of wanting what is really good for both of us, but what's good for you. I want you to be made right again. I want this relationship restored again. That's a loving thing. That is a loving thing. And I know that when we love someone enough to reconcile a relationship, it's going to get rid of fear. Because it says in 1 John 4 that perfect love casts out fear. And so if love is at the center of reconciliation, then what's going to happen is I'm not going to be afraid anymore. And I'm not going to try to strive to work and make it, make it work for myself anymore. We see that with Jacob. When reconciliation happens, you know what? He's not afraid anymore. He's walking into Edom probably more confident, probably a lot happier, probably a lot lighter. The weight's been lifted. He's right with Esau, and so he's not worried about being killed. This love that he's experienced because of reconciliation has cast out fear, and it's stopped him from striving. It's, you know, he didn't keep, after he, he encouraged Esau to take the gifts, I don't think he continued for years like paying Esau a payment to keep him safe. He wasn't trying to work this peace out for himself. A right relationship is going to result in peace. And I believe that is a good thing. I believe peace is part of the life that we have in Christ. And I believe it's part of his plan for our relationships with people. Um, we don't have time to get into it tonight. The two words we have for you there, teraphim and Israel teraphim, um, that's, that's referring to the household idols or the images or gods that, uh, false gods that were worshipped, what Rachel stole out of Laban's house. Um, point there, just to summarize it up, um, she took them because she was afraid that they had power. The only reason she would have taken them is if she thought that they were going to help Laban get Jacob or get her company. I don't think she took them just because she wanted to take them. They had enough possessions. She wasn't stealing it for a material profit. She was stealing it probably because she was afraid of the, the power that she believed they possessed. What she would come to know in Jacob's house was there wasn't any room for false gods because they were serving the living God. And they were serving a God of power. They were serving a protector and a provider in the one true God. And so that's just a little bit on that. And then we talked a lot tonight about Um, getting a new name about us being born again, experiencing God, how we leave changed, um, how we leave alive, how we leave not striving anymore, trading, striving for God's blessing. Um, You know, that's something we can take away from the name Israel. It means contending with God. um, And and I was going to just expound about that, about surrendering to God, about experiencing God, about being changed by God. These are the kinds of things we can take away from that word. Be encouraged tonight. Did you learn anything? I, I hope you're stirred up and built up, and you know, just even the element of seeing reconciliation between us and the Lord. I mean, I I love that message, and it always it always encourages me to know that I'm in a right relationship with God, that I've experienced forgiveness, I've got newness of life. I'll never get tired of hearing that. Amen. And so uh, tonight, as we as we close, let's just pray that we'll have opportunity for this word in our life. And I, you know, I know that there are people that do things that divide and offend every single day. And so I believe this is something so so practical for us to just implement right away. You know, somebody does something that was wrong. I'm going to forgive you immediately, and I'm going to I'm going to pursue reconciliation. What does that look like? Well, I would say it either looks like approaching like Jacob in humility, or it looks like approaching like Esau with love and forgiveness at the front. I mean, it's a great picture of reconciliation happening between two people. So let's just pray tonight that we're aware of those opportunities and that, um, that we know the truth and how to get it done, how to have reconciliation and life in Christ. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for the word tonight, and I thank you that these aren't just stories of something that happened a long time ago, Lord. This is, 
This is history. It's true, but it's also for today. It's also something so applicable for our lives that we can look to Jacob and Esau and the reconciliation that happened between the two of them. And Lord, I thank you just for the picture of the reconciliation we have with you that you have forgiven us. We have newness of life that the old things, the things that have been repented of, the sin that we used to have as part of our old man has been uh, buried in the grave. And Lord, we are a new creation alive in Christ. We're in right relationship with you. And I thank you that that's been your plan for us. I thank you that you took steps to make that plan possible and make it happen in our life. Lord, thank you for the reconciliation, for the right standing we have in Christ. And I thank you too, Lord, that tonight we've, we've just been stirred up on this topic of reconciliation. And Lord, we know that it is, a, it is life to have relationship, whereas division um, leads to destruction and death. We saw that in Luke 11. I thank you, God, that you have a plan for reconciliation, for unity, for restoration in relationships. And so I pray even tonight as, as we've read the word tonight, as, as these people leave here, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would show us what relationships we might need restoration in. Show us tonight, Holy Spirit, and lead us um, to those who we ought to reconcile with, who we've had unforgiveness with, or maybe who uh, we, have, we have done wrong against and who we could reach out to in humility like Jacob and um, just bury that old thing. And Lord, I pray that as we do that with people and, and even use the word, even maybe this story of Jacob and Esau as a jumping off point, God, I thank you that we are equipped with the truth. We know how it's supposed to go. We know that there is a newness of life available. And God, I just pray that you would use your word in our heart to lead us through these conversations and encounters with people, God. And I pray that as we do that, as relationships are reconciled and restored, I pray that it would just it would shine light into these people's lives, that they would see that you are good, that you are a life giver, that you came to bring abundant life, Jesus, and that it's available to all who would call on your name. We thank you for that, and we believe it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. We'll go. Go in right standing tonight. Go and be the light. Amen.